welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about Grimm's Fairy Tales by the Brothers Grimm. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Monica Hilder, a professor of English at Trinity Western University in British Columbia. She's the author of Letters to Annie, A Grandmother's Dreams of Fairy Tale Princesses, Princes, and Happily Ever After, as well as several books on C.S. Lewis. She podcasted with us previously on Paralandra, which is the second book in the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, and she joins us by phone as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Monica, welcome back to the Great Books Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me on again, John. I really enjoyed talking with you about great books. Why is Grimm's Fairy Tales by the Brothers Grimm a great book? It simply is. What can I say? These are cultural stories. They're part of our heritage. They're part of our, you know, human DNA now. Stories like Hansel and Gretel, uh, the grim version of Cinderella, which is perhaps not as well known as the French version, Little Red Riding Hood. These are all stories that are part of our psyche. They are amazing. They are also disturbing. People talk about fairy tales like these as helping us to really engage with good and evil. What could be more universal than that? We're going to talk about all that, some of these brand name fairy tales, the the guys who, who wrote them down and gave us Grimm's fairy tales, what the purpose of these fairy tales is, what Disney has to do with all of it, and a lot more. Monica, let's just start with a simple definition. What is a fairy tale, and does it need a fairy? Well, that is a great question. So basically, a fairy tale is a short folk tale that comes from the oral tradition. These stories that uh, have been told and retold over the centuries, and uh, Tolkien actually advises us to take that term fairy tale very broadly, very loosely, because most of them really don't have fairies in them. And it was George MacDonald, actually, who said, Yeah, the reason we call them fairy tales in English is because we have no word in English that actually corresponds to the German word Märchen, um, which is the diminutive form of Mär, which is spelled M-A, the umlaut R, and that simply means a news story, or or we could say tidings, like a story. And that, of course, becomes super interesting when we start thinking of good news and gospel as being the good news, and so on. Now, you have a line in your book, Letters to Annie, and I just want to quote it because it it builds on what you just now said. And the line is this, quote, My love and respect for fairy tales grew alongside my hearing the stories of the Bible. I knew that both were true, but in somewhat different ways, unquote. What does that mean? Yeah, thanks for that. Yes, I was thinking about what is it that really drew me to fairy tales since I was, you know, a little kid before I even went to school. And, of course, that had to do with my mother reading uh, fairy tales to me in the original. My parents are from Europe, uh, and so it was Grimm's fairy tales that I grew up on alongside uh, hearing Bible stories from my parents and, of course, from church. And even before I went to school, I think this is true, I had this sense that both fairy tales and the Bible were true, but in different ways. So the idea that 
obviously the Bible is, uh, well, historically true. It actually happened. Kind of like Lewis's essay, Myth Became Fact. And the fairy tales that I knew as a kid, which I just knew the grim fairy tales before I learned about the other ones, just had this sense of wonder that magic can happen. And then, of course, when we think of the Bible, the miracles, it just all made sense to me. Let's jump into one of the fairy tales. There's a lot to discuss here, and I want to get into the authors and or editors, if we want to call them that. But let's jump into a very famous one called Cinderella. A lot of us know of it because of the Disney movie, but what are the origins of the fairy tale Cinderella, and what is the story like in Grimm? Cinderella is fascinating because it really seems to be totally global. There are so many Cinderella stories, and the attraction, it is a classic rags-to-riches story. The Grimm version, Ash Puddle, is perhaps lesser known. So in the French version, we've got the fairy godmother, we've got the pumpkin becoming the coach, and we have the glass slipper. Uh, That's the only version that actually has the glass slipper. Whereas in the grim version, Ash Puddle, uh, begins with the dying mother who tells her daughter to trust in God, and she says, dear child, be good and pious, and then the good God will always protect thee, and I will look down on thee from heaven and be near thee. And so the daughter then goes to the mother's grave and goes there daily and weeps, uh, and at one point she asked her father to bring her a a branch from on his travels uh, returning home, and he, yeah, he does that. He brings her a, a hazel branch, which has this kind of magical significance often in fairy tale. And she plants it and becomes this magical tree. And a white bird comes to the tree and grants her every wish. So there's no fairy godmother. And it's very clear that the daughter is wanting to what? To, to to pray, to choose what is good, and has this sense that indeed her mother is watching down on her. And in the grim version, importantly too, when the royal wedding then happens, the, the two faults, well, half-sisters who are faults in terms of wickedness, they are in fact punished. The pigeons arrive and they peck out their eyes. So we've got this really horrific ending as opposed to the French version where Cinderella forgives them and finds husbands for them at the court. Now let's talk about this horrific bit in the Brothers Grimm version of Cinderella because we're going to see this theme in a lot of the fairy tales. In Cinderella, in this one, you have a couple of moments of horror. There's the one, the very end that you mentioned where the the birds peck out the eyes of these evil stepsisters, blinding them. That's That's kind of gross. And there's also an earlier scene when they're running around trying to fit the shoe on the different people, right? They're trying to figure out whose shoe is this in the sort of classic Cinderella tale. And to make their feet, to, to make a foot fit in the shoe, they're cutting off their toes. So they're dismembering their, their, their toes. Another horror scene. What's going on here in a story we associate with reading to children? Yeah, let's get back to that question about childhood. But in terms of the horrific, really horrific aspects of people who are willing to mutilate themselves in order to become wealthy, I I think what the story is illustrating is that 
it doesn't work, right? You can try to mutilate yourself, but truth has hard edges. Your feet will bleed if you try to cut off parts. And in terms of the pigeons pecking out the eyes of the false sisters, uh, we're told for their wickedness and falsehood, they were punished with blindness. And that, of course, to, well, many of us in a contemporary, in our contemporary uh, context would say, oh my goodness, this is so cruel, and surely that is. Uh, But it seems to me what these cultural stories are illustrating is this larger truth of the nature of things in a moral universe. Where there is no repentance, sin will lead to death. Blindness that we choose to have in this life will become permanent. You mentioned there are a couple different versions of Cinderella. In fact, you see these rags to riches stories, young women in bad spots who marry and and marry well and rise. This is a story you find in an awful lot of cultures. And one of the reasons it's so well known, Cinderella is so well known today is because of the Disney movie. I assume that one is more based on the French version than, than the German brothers Grimm version. But tell us how fairy tale moves into movie and what all of these stories owe to Disney. Yeah, that is a really important thought because we, of course, are so um, informed by the movie industry, for better or for worse. A lot of the time we could say for better. I would say some of the various uh, Cinderella versions are actually rather good, rather faithful. You're right. It's not the grim version showing the, the horror if if you persist in evil. Um, so it's more of the redemption. Um, in terms of what Disney has done overall, uh, well, of course, it's much criticized. I, I like to refer to a colleague, Vigen Garoyan, in his book, uh, Tending the Heart of Virtue, fantastic book. Uh, the long title is How Classic Stories Awaken a Child's Moral Imagination. And in that, when he's uh, critiquing a Disney, he says, you know, Disney is really appealing to our sort of materialism, and so they, they have flattened, you know, so-called made the stories safe. But really, a lot of the time, maybe not always, but a lot of the time what you get in the movie versions is what he calls our society's obsessions with physical beauty and romantic love, and, and that Disney has is guilty of having removed the moral and spiritual values that are in classic fairy tales. And, um, yeah, there's another really good book on this issue, Cinderella Ate My Daughter by Peggy Orenstein, where she's just uh, very, I think in many ways, very helpfully critical of the princess industry that we find ourselves inundated with. I bet a lot of parents, though, are glad that in the cartoon Disney version of Cinderella, they didn't have people chopping off their toes and, and bloody feet and and that sort of thing, which raises the, the larger question about what can children handle? Grimm's fairy tales are full of violence. They're full of, of sex. How do you know what children are ready for? Well, I suppose one could say you don't. But there are a lot of, yeah, a lot has been said and thought about this. For one thing, they weren't originally, you know, written for kids. So Tolkien and Lewis 
um, saying, you know, this was a mid-20th century accident that people discarded fairy tales as not being important for adults. So, you know, they're good for kids. Whereas in, in other cultures, uh, I know that, uh, well, looking at Germany and, you know, other parts of the world, fairy tales are always taken seriously in a sense. It's kind of a cultural value. So it's not, so they aren't for kids. Um, they're for everybody. And yeah, I would like to point out that, you know, in, in, in medieval Europe, the average lifespan was like something like 30 years. So in fact, everyone heard the tales. And many of the protagonists are in fact children, young people. In terms of are they suitable, all this violence, all this sex, that is something that every uh, parent, every educator has to really process to, you know, what extent, which ones, and so on. I would like to speak to what Lewis says about trying to banish violence from stories given to children. You know, give them only safe stories so you won't scare them. Well, you know, he says, yeah, you can't banish fear by giving children safe stories. In fact, you're making them more vulnerable to the real evils that are out there. And he uh, insists that fairy tale, yes, fairy tales gives you terrors. There are dragons. There are witches. There are all these terrible beings. But the fairy tales also have these radiant rescuers, these protectors, and we really need to engage with that as young children. It's, kind of, it's like giving children courage. Behind Grimm's fairy tales, the first version of which was published in 1812, there were updates and other versions and so on, behind Grimm's fairy tales are the brothers Grimm. They are Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. Who are these guys, and how did they compile the fairy tales? And should we think of them as the authors or the editors or the collectors of folk tales? Help us understand who they are and what role they played. Yeah, thank you. So they, they were German academics. They were philologists. Uh, they researched culture. We need to think of them as collectors, that they recorded the fairy tales that were in the culture, they would listen to, to very literate people who knew the tales, who heard them from people who were not literate. So they collected them. They wanted to record uh, essentially German cultural history. And, yeah, I mean, they, were, they worked as professors, as librarians. They wrote a definitive German dictionary. Uh, Jacob Grimm wrote the uh, Germanic Grammar, and that led into his whole, his whole legacy as in terms of linguistics. That's an important legacy Jacob Grimm has in the world of linguistics and the history of language. And I don't want to get sidetracked here, but tell us briefly, what did he do in linguistics that mattered so much? Yeah, what he did was really super important. So Grimm's Law has to do with the first discovery of this systematic sound change. So, for example, the Latin P patter corresponds to the Germanic F, fata, same word, P becomes F. And so before, so various people were noticing, obviously, these uh, consonant sound changes, but he, Jacob Grimm put forward this rule uh, in his book 
that this was actually uh, a regular thing, a regular phenomenon. This wasn't just this random thing process that people thought it was. And as a result of his work on this, um, this is now a really well-established law in the field of linguistics. So we can thank uh, Jacob Grimm for extending what people have begun to notice in the very early 1800s. And then, yeah, his book was published in 1822. So. so he's a pioneer in the science of linguistics. As he and his brother are going around and collecting these folktales, how did they collect the stories? Yeah, basically, they just asked people, they listened to people, they recorded what they heard, they asked very literate people uh, who also heard it from illiterate peasants, so the idea of the, uh, these stories really are part of our cultural DNA, they certainly were part of the cultural DNA of the peasantry at large in the German states, and they collected a bit over 200 tales. To what extent should we think about these tales as a kind of national literature of the German people? Yeah, it's true, because the Grimm brothers were really wanting to preserve a cultural identity, and it is described as being, you know, their efforts as being part of the nationalist movement in the 19th century. We should remember that uh, the German states, all these various German states, did not really become a nation until 1871. So it's the idea of wanting to preserve what could be lost and also perhaps in distinction to other cultures in Europe. Most of us who read Grimm's fairy tales have to do it in English, which means we need translations. Monica, can you recommend a translation or an edition if someone wants to read Grimm's fairy tales, the best version of Grimm's fairy tales? Yeah, I really like uh, Margaret Hunt's 1884 translation, so you can easily find all of that online. But um, I was just actually given a 2022 edition, a print edition. So Margaret Hunt, uh, The Complete Grimm's Fairy Tales. And actually the print edition I have is illustrated by Arthur Rackham. Uh, and I just looked that up. He did that in 1909. So that's a lovely addition. Um, in a lot of uh, college courses, and I use this other text as well, uh, which includes Grimm and many other fairy tales. So it's called uh, Folk and Fairy Tales. It's edited by Martin Hallett and Barbara Karasek, and that's a pretty standard uh, fairy tale uh, text. But in terms of going back to... Uh, you know, having the full scope of what the Grimm brothers did, I would definitely recommend Margaret Hunt's 1884 translation. Now, in these Grimm's fairy tales, there are so many famous stories. We've already discussed Cinderella, but there's Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, Rumpelstiltskin, Rapunzel, all of them in Grimm's fairy tales. There's one that I know you like a lot called The Bremen Town Musicians. What is that? fairy tale about? That one is, again, very memorable, and I think it's very well known uh, in in Germany uh, or anywhere where the German language is somehow uh, alive and well. So the story is about these aging animals. They're destined for slaughter. And the first one is the donkey, and he realizes he's about 
you know, about to become horse meat. It's like, no, not doing that. You know, anything's better than waiting for death. So he takes off, leaves the owner, and he meets subsequent animals, a dog, a cat, a rooster, and they all have the same problem. They're all aging. They're about to be killed. And so the phrase in that story is, you can find something better than death everywhere. So they take off, and it's kind of this amusing idea that they could become town musicians in the city of Bremen. They actually don't make it to Bremen, although we don't know, maybe they did later on, but they come to a forest where they they find a robber's house, and they scare the robbers by perching one on top of the other, and they start making so-called music, you know, the music that a donkey, a dog, a cat, a rooster can make, and the robbers flee, thinking they've met with a ghost. And the four animal musicians, yeah, they, they have this new life together, and they live in peace. And um, I really love, always love this story. But I came across, uh, in Jim Ware's book, God of the Fairy Tale, he wrote about this story in a chapter he calls Ragtag Band, the Refugee Church. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is so fantastic. The idea that these animals are fleeing a really cruel world, and what are they fleeing uh, towards? They're racing towards life. And that is a perfect image of the church, of the body of Christ. Here we are, we're all these, we're an odd assembly, you know, like the friends that we have through, um, through church, through Christ, are not necessarily the friends we would have chosen, and they wouldn't probably have chosen us, but here we are all together, we're all on the same road, finding what is better than death. Another famous road in Grimm's fairy tales is the one in Little Red Riding Hood, or at least it's a path. Remind us, what is Little Red Riding Hood about? Who is the girl? What happens to her as she's uh, marching down the path? Little Red Cap is the, the German title, but yeah, Little Red Riding Hood. I mean, it's, yeah, so the mother is sending her young daughter to take food to her sick grandmother who lives in the woods. She warns the daughter not to leave the path. Uh, Red Cap is totally unaware of the dangers of the wolf. She's not afraid of him. He deceives. He runs it, races ahead. He devours the grandmother. And then you've got that famous, the wolf in the grandmother disguise, where Little Red Riding Hood, what big ears you have, what big eyes you have, and so on. And he swallows Red Cap. The huntsman passes by, hears uh, snoring, discovers the wolf, uh, cuts open the belly, saves the grandmother, saves Red Cap. So it is uh, really this very classic cautionary tale that, you know, the person who looks friendly could in fact be a predator. So the whole idea of not opening your door to them, right? Don't give evil an opportunity. There's, there's a subsequent sort of a PS ending of what happened when Red Cap, Little Red Riding Hood, again uh, went to visit her grandmother. Well, now she's aware, oh, yes, there could be wolves out there. And she's become savvy. She warns the grandmother, and the two of them manage to yeah, end up um, uh, working it so that the wolf, in fact, drowns. And this one mixes violence and humor, I would say. You have the wolf devouring the grandmother and then devouring Red Cap, but then this humorous scene where they're actually cut out of the belly. Another act of violence, I suppose, but I can imagine a kid kind of laughing at that one. 
Yeah, and different writers have said, you know, children, absolutely, kids want justice. And uh, Chesterton said it too. Yeah, kids want justice. They want evil punished. Uh, They're not worried at all about that. It's adults who want mercy. Now, how did you get interested in fairy tales? As, As a reader, you said it was as a little girl. How did you turn that into an academic and scholarly interest where you actually study fairy tales? Yeah, well, it just continued to evolve in terms of my fascination, I guess, with fairy tale, with myth, which led me to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and uh, other Inklings writers, um, ones who influenced the Inklings, George MacDonald. So it's really all of a piece. Uh, it's just something that kept growing. Um, in terms of my my teaching, I teach a fairy tale as well, and I, I have it in the children's literature course, although... We could say, yeah, it's technically, you know, they're not written for children. There are different ways of looking at that. Uh, And I just find that there's so much wealth in fairy tale, moral and spiritual truths that are often missed because we read them. I think we often misread them when we read, oh, such a beautiful uh, princess, such a handsome young guy. We have some sort of, you know, virtual modified movie image in our heads thanks to the silver screen and we don't really realize we have no idea what these characters in fairy tale looked like other than they had blonde hair they had black hair that's all we know and uh i really love how fairy tale helps us to think about what true beauty is and what uh, true happily ever after is so it's not this kind of flat thing but it has to do with virtue You're a scholar, but your latest book is not a work of scholarship. It's called Letters to Annie, A Grandmother's Dreams of Fairy Tale Princesses, Princes, and Happily Ever After. It's basically 33 letters to an imaginary granddaughter. What's your aim in writing that book, and why this format of letters? Well, I chose the format because I was wondering how I could do this for general readership. And the idea came to me that Lewis wrote a book on prayer called Letters to Malcolm. And as soon as I thought of that, it was like, aha, I will write letters to Annie. And the name was right there. So my idea was to look at life through the lens of fairy tale and to take a character for, you know, the first 25 years of her life. So it's essentially a coming-of-age story for Annie, for the first 25 years of her life, and it is also, therefore, a coming-of-age story for the grandmother, who is then, so her age, her last letter was written at age 88. So I'm looking at life through the lens of fairy tale, and one of my big reasons for writing the book was because I see increasingly how fairy tale is trashed. The idea that classic fairy tales are really sexist, you know, women are such passive non-entities, and, you know, that kind of attitude that um, is perhaps understandable if we don't really know a lot about fairy tales but have certain ideas that, you know, they're kind of flat, simple stories and happily ever after, well, what is that? And, And there's just so much more to the fairy tales. So happily ever after, my goodness, 
In, in the German versions, the, they end with the line, which they often end with the line, and I've come across this in English fairy tales too, which is, so instead of saying, and they lived happily ever after, the line is, and if they haven't died, they're still alive today, which perhaps implies something about happily ever after, but it's not that sort of easy happily ever after, because there's nothing easy about fairy tales. Uh, there is tremendous struggle, all the struggles we have with good and evil and how how under heaven can we, you know, overcome evil well with good. And um yeah, the theme of the book, Letters to Annie, is from First Corinthians thirteen, Love Never Fails. So regardless of what our life path is, regardless of whether we uh find uh, a life partner regardless of what happens, that love, God's love, never fails and that we can have a beautiful, wonderful life in a broken planet because essentially we're looking towards what? The ultimate prince, the king of kings. Yeah, I love what Tolkien says about fairy tale and its highest purpose, which has to do with the ultimate happy ending that we have in Christ. Monica Hilder, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about Grimm's Fairy Tales by the Brothers Grimm. Thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Please send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at haymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.